Welcome to The Pen and the Yod. Join Rabbi Michael Siegel from Anshayamit Synagogue and author Jonathan Eig as they talk about this week's Torah portion of Truma. Can Judaism be coerced? Have you ever been coerced into anything successfully? <laughs> oh, man. Like, you mean like going to Hebrew school uh, oh, or oh. having to practice my trumpet when I was a kid? Or uh, I'll, I'll stick to the childhood examples. I don't want to suggest that I'm still being coerced into any, anything. Um, but yeah, we get coerced into things all the time, don't we? I think so. I, but so, but the, the, the key word there was successfully. So was I coerced into anything successfully? Um, yeah, that's a tough one. I don't know. I guess, I, I guess, you know, I certainly didn't want to go to Hebrew school, but it was probably successful in the long run for me. I guess the benefits were, were, uh, were worth the, uh, the coercion. Yeah. Here, you know, I, I, I have to say, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to talk about trumpet lessons or something like that, but it immediately goes to Hebrew school. Yeah. I don't know. Sorry. I could speak for myself. I also felt coerced. I, in fact, I remember a conversation with my mother, which I probably shouldn't repeat of blessed memory. We were driving to Hebrew school and I said to her, mom, why do I have to go? Which is probably the refrain of a lot of kids. Yep. Why, why, do you, why are you forcing me to go to Hebrew school? And she looked at me and she said, we're sitting in a light. And she said, well, I had to go and you have to go. It was like taking castor oil or something. You just yeah, had right. to do it. And I think this is something that parents struggle with. It's on the one hand, you know, in a perfect world, everything comes from within. The desire to engage comes from within. Of course, you know, a young person will think going to Hebrew school or sitting in your room and practicing your trumpet or, your, or taking or piano is going to be good for you, and, it's, and that's how you develop the skill and the discipline and all that. But coercion also plays a role. Right? As parents, we, you know, we, we have to help our children uh, even when they don't want to. We make decisions that we think are good for them in the long run and not always right, but you know, that's part of what parenting involves. And, and you, you hope that they someday will appreciate it or that they will get something out of it even if they don't ever really enjoy it or, or feel good about it, but that you're planting something there. And I think that's the hope. And by the way, whatever your Hebrew school was ultimately like, something was planted in you there. Sure. Yeah. I'm sure even more in your own home so that there is something to coercion or forcing someone to do something that's for their good, even if they don't want to do it. But are there limits to that? In other words, can you coerce someone into being a Jew, into staying a Jew? Can you coerce someone to believe? That's a question, I think, as well. And I think it's worth worth our conversation. Yeah, no, it's a great question, because at a certain level, you have to bring some passion to something. Um, it's the same thing with the music lessons, even. You know, we, we can push our kids to play up to a certain point. But music is about expressing something deep within yourself. It's about passion. It's about emotion and you can't force that. So at a certain point, it either takes off or it doesn't. And I think the same thing is true for Hebrew school and for faith in general, right? You can't just go through the motions after at some point. I think you make it a really important point. And the Torah seems to indicate that the 
place of limitation, place where you can no longer coerce, is in that relationship with God. That has to be undertaken willingly. And that is made manifest in the first verse in this week's portion, which is a portion of Truma. And to kind of contextualize this, the Israelites you know, have left Egypt and they're now being instructed to build a portable tabernacle, a portable place of worship to God. And so Moses is going to ask the people for contributions to build this space. And the, the portion begins with these words. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the Israelite people to bring me gifts, truma, and you shall accept those gifts for me. And then it says something that, that, that's strange. Every person whose heart so moves him. Yidvenu libo, his heart moves him. So I guess that would indicate that if it doesn't move you, then you don't have to give. Mm -hmm. But the Torah number does this anywhere else. It's not like if your heart moves you, you should keep kosher. If your heart right. moves you, you should do X, Y, or Z. We refer to our laws as mitzvot, as commandments, as things that are placed upon you. So I think that it's not like coercion is a strange idea. In fact, the rabbis, there's a midrash that envisions God holding Mount Sinai in the air and holding it above the Israelites. And God says, accept my Torah or I'm going to drop this on you. Now, that is the definition of coercion. Here, the rabbis are winking at us and saying, yeah, what are you going to say? No. Will you accept my Torah? Are you going to really say no to God? At the end of the day, coercion can only take you so far. That relationship with God, that belief system has to ultimately come from within. And I think it's a very important distinction that we should be making. It is important. And it, it strikes me that, you know, there's a distinction here. There are rules, like you mentioned, you know, we don't apply the same standards to keeping kosher or to following the, the commandments. But when you're in a relationship, when you're thinking about this almost as a gift, when you're making a gift, it has to come from the heart or else what's, is it really a gift or is it not an obligation? And I think that um, you have to bring some feeling to it or else it just begins to feel like you're being compelled. And then it's, um, it's not a real relationship. I think that you're framing this in the exact right way. You could read the, the Torah. In fact, biblical scholars will talk about Torah being structured and the, certainly the laws of Mount Sinai as what they would call a vassal suzerain treaty. In other words, it follows the ancient format of treaties made with kings. King starts by saying, you know, I've done all of these things for you. And this is what you will now do for me. So it's this kind of relationship. But it's really, you know, you're talking about some sort of king and a vassal. And that, and you could read the Torah that way. You could say that this is the God is the king and we are the servants and, this are, and these are our laws. And there are consequences for not keeping those laws. But at the very onset the Torah is really focusing on relationship. If it was just a king, a suzerain vassal treaty, then you, who cares how you're feeling? 
you should be motivated by fear and nothing else. But what the Torah is asking here is, what's your relationship with God? How do you engage with God? And I think that's a very powerful idea. Yeah, there's no question about it. And I think it connects to our experiences day to day, you know, when we when we go to synagogue, when we're, you know, engaged in prayer, when we're looking at the Torah, are we just reading the words? Or are we in relationship? Are we bringing something to it? And, you know, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you feel like you're just reading the words, but that's not the same as, as being in a relationship. You know, when I was a, a younger rabbi, I would unabashedly ask people from time to time if I was talking with them about something meaningful or that uh, touched on religious belief, I would ask them, do you believe in God? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was a, never a comfortable conversation for people sitting with a rabbi asking that question. But I came to the conclusion that that's, first of all, it's an ineffective question. And you're opening yourself up to something that really is hard to kind of, it's not a conversation starter, if you will. Mm -hmm. Right. So instead, I asked people, what's your relationship with God? And that's a very different question. And I think it, it elicits a very different response. I think that's something that you can think about. Do I yeah. have a relationship with God? Go ahead. No, I was going to say it, it's also um, an open-ended question as opposed to a yes or no question, which allows people to um, connect with you in a more meaningful way. You know, when you ask yes or no questions, you're not really encouraging dialogue. You're not really listening. You're just, you know, you're, it's almost feels like you're testing. Um, but when you ask a question that's, you know, open-ended, you know, why or what or how, um, you're promoting conversation, which is another way of really engaging uh, in a more meaningful way. My experience of asking that question is that that's not a question that people have often considered. Mm -hmm. Do I believe in God? Do I not believe in God? It's sort of like a yes, no. What's being considered here is the exact same thing as this, this opening verse of Truma. What's in your heart? Do you see God as a uh, entity within with which you have a relationship that you can look to for support? That in your lonely moments you won't feel alone. Um, in your triumphant moments, that you will understand that the good that you are enjoying comes from another source as well, that you, that there is a, there is also the power of gratitude attached to that moment. And to take a second and to recite a Shekhyanu or some other blessing to bring God into the moment to, I think, further the relationship, that I think is the ultimate essence of what Jewish life is about. Jewish prayer doesn't begin with petition. It begins with praise. It begins with thanksgiving. I think when you, when you feel that you are in relationship with God, right, beyond the moments of crisis, but in the everyday happenings, that's where relationships are, are developed. And that's where the heart is. And I'm always so moved by the fact that the Torah is beginning here in this moment of the creating of the tab, the creation of the tabernacle in the same way that the Torah begins in the book of Genesis. In the Garden of Eden, what does God want? 
it's not about the tree of knowledge and, and eating the tree. What God wants is a relationship where there's trust and love. God wanted the hearts of Adam and Eve, and God got something very different in return. And I think there's a sadness to that. And God and God's willingness and God's openness to be in relationship is, I think, what speaks to the greatness of Judaism. Yeah, I certainly agree. And I think that it's it makes it feel personal the way you're describing it. It makes it feel like uh, something that we, we can all relate to because we all want to be heard. We all want to be felt and we all want to be loved. In any relationship, there are responsibilities. There are mitzvot. In other words, if you are in a marriage, if you are, you know, have a deep friendship with someone, there are rules. There are things that you need to uphold that are unshakable. Mm -hmm. If you want to be in relationship, if you are giving your heart to someone, you expect them to give their hearts to you or to open their hearts to you, then you have to be true to the relationship. And I think that's a, that's something that can get lost very easily. So that once you uh, begin this um, open heart, responsibilities for that relationship follow. And here it is. That's the essence of our tour reading for today. Well, I appreciate that. And it's really helpful to think about and uh, our relationship with God and with our people, with the, the people around us. So I thank you, Rabbi. And I thank your parents for forcing you to Hebrew school. I'm not sure we'd be having this conversation <laughs> otherwise. I'm, I'm pretty sure that we would not. So that is a helpful reminder. Thank you.